Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the March 18th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Abby Dees. This week, we dip into the IMRU archive to share a bit of history we thought lost, Steve Pride's 1999 conversation with gay pioneer Harry Hay and Charlie Vaughn's report on the origins of the radical fairies. And I talk in studio with transgender activist and actor Scott Turner Schofield. But first, let's spill some tea, the honest tea. We've talked a lot on this show about the Trump ban on transgender service members. It almost feels like old news. And I kind of feel like that's part of the plan. We just get so inured to it, and we hear all these things about these different courts doing this and that, but nothing's actually happening. Well, stuff is happening now, and we discussed this last week on our Honest Tea segment. The last federal court injunction stopping the ban has been lifted, and so officially now, the ban is going into effect April 12th. So just a little refresher here because so much has happened with this ban since Trump first tweeted in the middle of the night in 2017 that he was going to ban transgender service members. There have been multiple court cases. There were at least four injunctions halting the ban by four different federal courts. Circuit courts weighed in. A new and improved ban was presented, and we're going to be talking about that new and improved ban in just a moment. So, The final injunction was lifted last week, and now the Department of Defense released its new policy implementing the ban via a 15-page memo. Now, that memo officially ends the Obama policy of open service by trans military members on April 12th. And so just a reminder, trans people have been serving openly in the military since June 2016. This changes everything. So I am going to take advantage of the fact that my radio husband is not here with me right now to go fully into this memo because I started reading it thinking I'd talk about it for a few minutes and it seemed so bonkers and unclear to me that I thought that deserved a good, deep, honest tea discussion. So let's begin with the memo. First page looks okay. It actually, at first glance, looks like the military's got this figured out, and they're going to treat trans members just like they treat everyone else. So I'm going to read a few passages here. First, the service in the military services is open to all persons who can meet the high standards for military service and readiness without special accommodations. All service members and applicants for accession to the military services must be treated with dignity and respect. No person solely on the basis of his or her gender identity will be denied accession into the military services, involuntarily separated or discharged from the military services, denied reenlistment or continuation of service in the military services, or subject to adverse action or mistreatment. Transgender service members or applicants for accession to the military services must be subject to the same standards as all other persons. Sounds enlightened, doesn't it? And then finally, in this first page, service members who access in their... I want to make sure that I actually understand this word accession or accession. I think that's a military-specific term, so I'm going to say access in this context. 
Service members who access in their preferred gender or received a diagnosis of gender dysphoria from or had such diagnosis confirmed by a military medical provider before the effective date of this memo will be allowed to continue serving in the military pursuant to the policies and procedures in effect before the effective date of this ban. It's a ban, folks. So that sounds pretty good, though. Anodyne, we don't discriminate. We believe in the dignity of trans service members. So let's look at the attachments. They start with people who are exempt. They say that people that entered into a contract for military service before April 12th, which is in a couple of weeks, are exempt. But there's some little provisions that go with that. If they entered into that contract and were medically qualified for military service at that time, and if they received a diagnosis of gender dysphoria from a medical provider. That sounds all right. But it says that individuals who are exempt will also be accessed or assessed, whatever that word is, or commissioned based on the following medical standards. So it there says a history of gender dysphoria is disqualifying unless, as certified by a licensed mental health provider, the applicant has been stable without clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning for 18 months. Okay, so gender dysphoria is the diagnosis not of being trans, but from the discomfort that comes from the disconnect between the biological gender and a person's gender identity. So I was talking with Scott Turner Schofield, who's going to be a guest on today's show, about this, that not every trans person has a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, but gender dysphoria comes from being pretty much trans in this world in many ways. So it is interesting to imagine what this might look like for someone who's trans and what the idea of stable means, because everybody at some point has some sense of anxiety or discomfort, I would say, around gender identity, whether or not they identify as trans. So stability seems like a very interesting invention in this memo. And it says that a history of medical treatment associated with gender transition is disqualifying unless a person has completed all medical treatment associated with the applicant's gender transition. So you would think that would mean that perhaps they went through full gender confirmation surgery. Eh, doesn't necessarily mean that. We'll talk about that in a second. And again, it says if the applicant has been stable in the preferred gender for 18 months, what does stable mean? But if a person is presently receiving cross-sex hormone therapy, we call those just hormones, post-gender transition, then they have to have been stable on those hormones for 18 months. And a history of sex reassignment or gender reconstruction surgery is disqualifying. Wait a minute. They're flipped out by surgery. You'll see this, that any sort of surgery pretty much means, yeah, you're not exempt. And then there's a section that says in-service transition. Service members who are exempt may continue to receive all necessary medical treatment as defined by the DOD to protect the health of the individual, obtain a gender marker change. So in other words, they can go and get their gender changed if they still qualify under these previous exemptions we were talking about. No surgery, stability, whatever that means. Okay, so these people are exempt. No history of any surgery. Hormones are fine if you are stable, and there's no threat of surgery. But it then suggests that you can transition and get treatment. So I'm not sure what treatment that would mean other than getting refills on your hormones. 
Now here are the non-exempt individuals, and that is a history or diagnosis of gender dysphoria. And if there has been any, oh yeah, anybody who is trans who does not have a history of gender dysphoria uh, must demonstrate that for 36 consecutive months they have been stable in their biological sex, which to me suggests that they're saying, well, you really can't be trans. So we don't discriminate against trans people, but you can't be trans. And more stuff about you can't have had any surgery, you're not starting hormone treatment. They're very freaked out by surgery. There's so much more in here. In-service transition. Non-exempt service members may consult with military medical provider to receive a diagnosis of gender dysphoria and receive mental health counseling, but they may not obtain a gender marker change. In other words, the military will not recognize them as being in a different gender. So in other words, you can be trans, but you can't act trans. I mean, really, all of this stuff says don't be trans. And then I want to get to the issue of separation. There's a heading here, subsection E, separation. Service members who are not exempt, and we pretty much determined that's almost anybody that applies to join the military after April 12th, may not be separated solely based on a diagnosis of gender dysphoria without first being medically evaluated for possible referral to the disability evaluation system. So I can only assume that that means that they have to be designated as disabled. So furthering this idea that there is something wrong with trans people. But if they determine that there is nothing wrong with you, you may be subject to administrative separation. So yeah, you can be kicked out if they decide, this is how I'm reading this, that you're not crazy, you're just trans. Moving on, there's the hidden subsection here. On page 10 of the memo, subsection B, service members with a diagnosis of gender dysphoria may be subject to the initiation of administrative separation processing in accordance with blah, 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 if they are unable or unwilling to adhere to all the applicable standards, including the standards associated with their biological sex. In other words, if you're trans and you're not crazy, they can separate you. What they don't say here is whether they will separate you with an honorable discharge there's some language in here that suggests disciplinary actions, so that tells me maybe not honorable discharge. But then there's another section that they can provide waivers. So I don't know how this has to do with military readiness, but apparently if someone wants to give you a waiver, they can do that. And that just reminds me of Don't Ask, Don't Tell back in the day when we all knew lots of people were serving, and if they didn't want to get rid of you because you were gay, they didn't have to get rid of you. But if they wanted to get rid of you because you were gay, they could. So... Here's the way I read this. Exempt means you might be able to stay there, but you have to be stable and you certainly shouldn't be getting any mental health stuff from the military around your gender identity because I suspect that will mean to them that you are not stable. And pretty much if you join after April 12th or later and you didn't jump through all the hoops to be exempt, and for anyone else who joined after April 12th or later and you didn't somehow manage to jump through all those hoops to be exempt, you don't exist as a trans person. So no, you can't change your gender identity with the military. There's nothing in here about education or training. There's certainly nothing in here about what if you need to get some mental health treatment about the fact that it's really hard to be trans in the military when they don't recognize that you exist and they want you to serve in your birth gender. And what's really at the bottom of this is this idea that we don't discriminate against trans people unless you are willing to serve 
as a non-trans person. And I really don't know who that wouldn't trigger gender dysphoria for if they didn't already have it when they joined. So obviously this is getting a lot of attention, but I'm reading this as a way to give the administration cover to show on one hand, look, we don't discriminate. We're trying really hard. They are saying that they are not discriminating against trans people, and they're actually doing pretty well in the courts around this. I don't see it. I don't really see how any trans person will be able to serve with any sense of security around this. That's what's happening April 12th. If you are a trans person with familiarity with the military and these policies and these memos, and you want to talk some more about this or you have something to share that I'm missing here, please, please get in touch with us and let us know. So that's the honesty for today. Harry Hay was a founder of the Mattachine Society, the first sustained gay rights group in the United States, as well as the Radical Fairies, a loosely affiliated gay spiritual movement. And Steve Pride has searched for years to find an interview he recorded with Harry in his home in 1999. This week, he found it in a box of old cassettes, and we want to share it with you tonight. Steve Pride reports. Before Stonewall, and now years after Stonewall, Harry Hay retains his vision that we as gay people have particular characteristics that contribute to society in a special way. I asked Harry, what in particular has held us back? Certainly up to Stonewall. We all lived under such fear. We lived in fear every day of our lives. Here in particular, for instance, here on the Pacific Coast, we were always aware of the fact that any time you went to meet various people in places that we knew about that were supposed to be safe for us, or we would go to a bar that would be friendly to gay people on certain nights of the week, you never knew when you stood up to the bar whether or not the guy who was being friendly with you on your left or on your right wasn't a stool pigeon. A stool pigeon either from the police or simply to blackmail you. You didn't know. That was a chance you took. And you also knew something else, too, which other people didn't recognize. And that is that we were people who lived under stigma. And when you live under stigma, even in the United States, you're a second-class citizen, and you are guilty until proven innocent without a shadow of a doubt. Everybody else in the United States assumed that they're automatically innocent until proven guilty without a shadow of a doubt, not us. Because we would be being accused of having done things and we wouldn't know who the accuser was, and we didn't know what we were accused of. I asked Harry about his place in the modern gay movement. I'm generally known as the um, first person to bring up the issue of gay and lesbian people as being a cultural minority, a cultural political minority. And I did this deliberately in 1948, 1949, because I suddenly realized that if we were going to organize ourselves, we had to organize ourselves based upon the principles of the First Amendments of the Bill of Rights and ground ourselves politically in this country. And in order to do that, we needed to recognize ourselves as a cultural group. And it was so radical an idea in 1950 and 51 that in 1953, the Madison Society split up. And they split up, and when they split up, they threw me out as a radical because I had this absolutely outrageous idea that we were a minority. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with that. They just wanted to show that, that there were exactly just a slight sexual variation. Otherwise, we're exactly the same as everybody else. So I got thrown out because of that outrageous idea that we were a minority. Nineteen years later, when Stonewall comes along, everybody assumed that we had always thought we were a cultural minority since day one. So then 19 years, we had changed completely in the thinking. But at the beginning, it was the other way around. I asked Harry, what makes us unique 
as gays and lesbians. I can remember that when I was finally accepted on the track team, up until that time I had been told I was a sissy and, and uh, get away from them and they didn't want anything to do with me. Or if they had to do with me, I would get picked last to go on the baseball team and then I got put out in right field where the boil never went. But eventually, you know, I always just say that sissies like me, there's, there are times when you just want to be wanted. And you do almost anything to get on the team and be wanted. And that didn't happen very often. But eventually you got to the place where maybe you found that you could do things on the track team. But I was sort of the despair of my track team because I didn't like to beat out anybody. I didn't like to win over somebody. If I were relaying, for example, and my competitor was behind me, I'd like to stop and help him. And so he did. And so he does. This has been Steve Pride talking with Harry Hay at his home in Hollywood. Thanks for listening. Harry Hay died in 2002, just a few years after this interview. So here's a little trivia. For years, Hay dated actor Will Gear, who went on to portray Grandpa on The Waltons, if you were old enough to remember The Waltons. I am. As we said, Harry Hay co-founded the seminal gay group The Radical Fairies. So what better feature to spotlight next during their 40th anniversary year then Charlie Vaughn's conversation with another of its founders, Don Kilhefner. This evening, I'm pleased to have Don Kilhefner and Mark Thompson with me. We cast a sacred circle in fairy love. We cast a sacred circle in fairy love. We cast a sacred circle in fairy love. We cast a sacred circle. How did the radical fairies come into being? Back in 1978, Harry Hay and I met out in San Juan Pueblo, New Mexico, where he was living. And both of us were concerned about the direction that the gay liberation movement was taking. It was becoming more bourgeois. It was becoming more conventional politics. It was becoming more gay assimilationist. And we felt that there was a need for something in the movement at that time that deepened our understanding of gay consciousness and gay spirituality. And so the radical fairies came out of that kind of understanding. I noticed on the poster from the original gathering that it was called, actually, a spiritual conference. Can you speak a little bit more to the aspect of spirituality? Well, both Harry and I felt strongly that one of the things that was missing from the movement at that time was an understanding of the purpose of gay people. Why are there gay people? Do gay people carry a different consciousness than straight people do? And if that is true, which I think it is, and Harry thought it was, what is our contribution to society from that place of gay spirit, gay consciousness? And so that was woven right into the conference. The subtitle of the conference was, what is the gay dimension of spirituality? What is the spiritual dimension of being gay? Any answers to those questions? Well, Harry has come up with his understanding what he calls subject-subject consciousness, that one of the ways that we differ from straight people is that we carry a subject-subject consciousness, same with same, while heterosexual carry a subject-object consciousness. And therefore, the way we walk in the world, the way we manifest ourselves in the world will be different. Walt Whitman also came up with there's a difference between gay men that he called adhesive and straight people, which he called amative. 
Edward Carpenter was an English socialist, one of the great pioneers of gay liberation, came up with the idea that gay people play certain kinds of social roles in society. Evolutionary biologists are telling us the same thing. E.O. Wilson at Harvard is saying gay people carry the rare altruistic impulse in our species, etc. So there's a lot of accumulating information that says they got it all wrong. We're not a sexual act, per se. There's something else that we're doing in society that allows us to remain generation after generation after generation. And the radical fairies were called together for us to begin talking about deepening and broadening what gay liberation was all about. So I'm thinking 1979, long before the advent of online connections of any kind, how did you go about gathering these men at that time for the first conference. <laughs> well, it was difficult, let me tell you. We, we had to find a place because we wanted a place where it would just be gay men. We didn't want anybody else around. And that's hard to find these days. And we finally ended up at a place out in the Sonora Desert of Arizona, east of Tucson, called the Sri Ram Ashram, run by a, a gay man. And Harry and I went out there, scouted it out, and said, yes, this is the place. It is isolated enough. The nearest neighbors were miles and miles away. It had a pool. It had a commercial kitchen. It had places where people could sleep. That was the place. Then we had to reach people. Yeah. And one of the ways we reached them, thank God for Mark Thompson, Mark came and did an interview with Harry. And during that interview, talked about the gathering. And Mark's article kind of got that out to the rest of the world. And we also did a historic leaflet, which also on one side talked about the gathering, on the other side talked about the purpose of the gathering, why we're calling gay men together. That place had scorpions too, Don. <laughs> <laughs> and rattlesnakes. And rattlesnakes. <laughs> they didn't tell you about that. No, time, no, no, no. Mark, at the time you were working at The Advocate, Yes, correct? I was just a young gay man living in San Francisco in 1979. I was 27 years old and had already been working for The Advocate for four years and was doing lots of cover articles. And I was aware of the writings of Edward Carpenter and Harry Hay from other sources. I felt that I've always been kind of on a spiritual seeker's path. And 1978 was important for a lot of reasons because, of course, that was the, uh, the year that uh, Harvey Milk was put into political office. And it seemed to be a benchmark for our community. On one level, it was. And on another level, it seemed like nothing was really happening. I mean, we were getting political gains, but I felt very deeply that we gay men were kind of in a stuck place spiritually, that we were still using each other and going about our business in familiar old ways and that we needed a new approach. So uh, when we had the opportunity to fly down and interview Harry, so I did this long interview with Harry about his ideas, these seminal ideas, and at the end of the article, I concluded with all of the information about how you could find this very remote place in the middle of the Arizona desert. So can you give us a little bit of a context, like how many men showed up and from where? About 150 gay men showed up. Wow. And the great thing was they came from all over North America. Every city was represented. Mm -hmm. Toronto. Vancouver, San Francisco, New Orleans, Miami, and there were two or three ferries from each one of these places. <laughs> and after the gathering was over, they went back and seeded ferry gatherings in their own cities. So very quickly, the radical ferries became a decentralized kind of operation. 
with fairy gatherings happening almost everywhere. And at the conference, was there a structure per se, or was it kind of made up as you it went along? It was both structured and unstructured. We yes. wanted to, each day had a structure to it. It began with a great fairy circle where we all got together and talked and shared. And then throughout the different days, there were different things that people wanted to do. Somebody wanted to do a workshop on tantric spirituality, gay tantric spirituality. Somebody else wanted to do something on erotic massage around the pool. Somebody wanted to do, and so people brought their gifts to this gathering. And all of those gifts were woven in to the fabric of what the gathering became. Each day also had a focus to it. And by the end of the uh, gathering, there was a great circle called, and a ritual in that great circle, which was created by the people who were at the gathering. It was mm. not predetermined, but people wove that ceremony together. So it was a very deep, powerful uh, gathering of gay men where the creativity created the gathering. There was a structure. But it was a loose structure. I'll never, ever forget that last gathering because there we were in the moonlight doing our avocations to the four spirits and to the sky and to the Mother Earth and to each other. And all of a sudden on the outskirts of the circle, we could see this enormous horned bull hmm. just appear as if out of nowhere. Wow. And it just standing there just looking at us and then just kind of disappearing. Things like this happened all the time. And don't forget the famous mud ritual that happened on the second day. I think it was John Burnside, uh, Harry Hayes' partner, and others said, well, all this talk and everything is fine, but we've got all this reddish earth, you know, so they found like a little gully not far from the encampment and did a bucket brigade and made this enormous pit of this beautiful, silky mud, and everyone just uh, stripped and adorned themselves with the mud put bits of chaparral on their hair, and just did this big clump of a muddy gay man. <laughs> it was a sight to behold. <laughs> it really was. This is Charlie Lang. I'm speaking with Don Kilhefner and Mark Thompson about the radical fairies. So, Don, have these gatherings continued to recur consistently? Continued to occur around the world. Around the world. All over the United States. There are Euro fairies that uh, meet several places several times a year. A residential fairy sanctuary opened in eastern France. A residential fairy sanctuary. So it's not just like a weekend fairy gathering. This is a facility where A fairies... place where radical fairies live, farm the land, have a relationship to nature, invite people in for gatherings periodically, and it's a place where a core group of fairies live. And other fairies or other gay men who are in need of some loving care, loving kindness, just getting away from the rush of things, can go and stay a week, can stay a month, can stay a year. Don, I'm wondering what relevance do the radical fairies hold for gay men today? I think there are three major ways in which the radical fairies are relevant today. One of them is that they represent progressive politics. We have very little in the way of progressive politics, organized progressive politics in the gay community today. Radical fairies work to increase, to broaden political and social consciousness in our community, supporting liberation movements of women and men, people of color, working people, ordinary people like us, support political candidates that have some kind of integrity and ethics to them so that we're involved in progressive politics. Radical fairies are relevant today because it focuses on gay-centered consciousness. It focuses on those questions of who are we? 
not the assimilation into the mainstream. But why are there gay people here? Why haven't gay people gone down the drainpipe of history? What are we contributing to society? So that kind of exploration, which I think young people are hungry for, particularly after the decades of empty calories of right-wing assimilationist politics in our community. And I think a third way that's relevant today is around community building. The radical fairies put a great deal of emphasis on creating community, healthy community, community in which we can be openly gay, community in which we honor ancestors, requires elders, uh, there are adults and youth working together, a community that has consciousness around the environment, a community that conducts ceremonies and rituals that keeps our community sane and healthy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all questions that I think young people are hungry for today. So I think what we're going to see is a wave of radical fairy consciousness Fantastic. coming into the community. The reality is gay liberation is a revolutionary movement. It wasn't a middle-class law reform movement. It was a revolutionary movement based on liberation. We liberate ourselves. We're not asking for emancipation. We liberate ourselves. And along with that liberation movement came a liberation consciousness, creating a community, creating a reality for us that makes sense to us, not fitting in to that larger community. And the radical fairies are the contemporary extension of that. It probably is the most vibrant grassroots gay effort in the world right now. Well, and on that note, I want to thank you both for uh, your rich conversation. I've been speaking with Don Kilhefner and Mark Thompson about the wonderful radical fairy movement in the United States and around the world. Dear friends, clear friends, let me tell you how I am feeling. You have given me such pleasure. I love you so. Dear friends, queer friends, let me tell you how I am feeling. You have given me such pleasure. Thompson passed away in 2016, but Dr. Don Kilhefner, who also co-founded the Los Angeles LGBT Center and Van Ness Recovery House, continues to practice as a psychotherapist in Hollywood. After the break, I sit down with Scott Turner Schofield. So stick around. We'll be right back. On This Day in History, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute, March 18, 1990, publisher Malcolm Forbes is outed in the gay publication Outweek. The cover story was titled The Secret Life of Malcolm Forbes. Written by Michelangelo Signorelli, his Gossip Watch column spoke out against closeted public figures. The Forbes piece was a media sensation, dividing people on the issue of outing public figures without their express permission. But many followed Signorelli's lead, outing others to expose their hypocrisy. Almost from its start in 1989, Outweek magazine had provided a platform for more militant members of the gay community. Initially, it gave a new generation of AIDS activists a voice. When they published their story about Malcolm Forbes, the word outing made it into the lexicon. 
The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Tom Miller. Hello, I'm Michelangelo Signorelli, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. I am so happy to welcome our next guest, one of our favorite guests here at IMRU, actor, writer, activist, and now film producer, Scott Turner Schofield. In 2018, Scott had a starring role in the Dutch-produced film, The Conductor, and this year, he was profiled in Forbes magazine for his trans awareness training work in the workplace. But last we talked to Scott, he was beginning a new project, turning his award-winning one-man play, Becoming a Man, in 127 Easy Steps into a multimedia film project, or as he's put it, transmedia adventure. So a lot has happened since we talked to you last. Scott, give us the update. We are working on filming the one-man show part, so that's really exciting. But there are 127 steps in this thing. There's 127 different stories. And when it was a live theater show, which I toured for going on 12 years all over the U.S. and Europe, what it was was the audience would pick a number between 1 and 127. So it'd be a different show every night. And that was really fun as an acting exercise. It was fun artistically. It was just a good time. And also, people have a lot of stories. And trans people have a lot of stories. And so I wanted to just really give room to kind of all of those things. But you can't put 127 stories in one film. So I was like, well, just the ring it, cycle. Yeah, right, right. That, you know, yeah. you could. And and my producer, Andrea James, suggested that, like, maybe we could make a trilogy. And I was like, that seems expensive. <laughs> um, and so I just realized, like, in the same way that people are never just one thing. So this story doesn't have to be either. So it's a feature film, it's a book, and it's a podcast. And what I'm doing right now is we're working on filming the film is, as you said, you're getting all of my emails. I'm sending out the stories. So right now, everyone who's supporting this through Patreon, which is a really fun and easy way to like get that to happen, to like support artists, and which is a great way to like for a dollar, you get an award-winning trans story in your inbox every week. Yep. So people are doing that. And we're so I'm sending out the written stories. And then we're going to move into the podcast pieces. And then hopefully by the time that's all over, we'll get into the last 27 steps of the film, which hopefully you'll see next year. I just want to say some of the stories that you've already sent that I've looked at have been wonderful, have the titles. And these stories are the steps. Yes. So, you know, like step, step number, number 25. Yeah. The titles include things like have a one night stand with a bisexual Republican. That one caught my eye when that came through. <laughs> Wind up in the women's ward. That was a harrowing story, but also funny. Like Good. So I'm glad you thought it was is. funny. Yeah. yeah. And please nobody with bonus song. Yeah. Please nobody was one of our first audio pieces. And so the podcast is kind of a catch-all because sometimes it's just going to be a song. And it's a song I wrote. My wife, Tara Naomi, who's an amazing songwriter, she's like, you can do this. I will sit with you and you can write a song. And it, it actually happened. And so we, we ended up creating that together, which was a lot of fun. So yeah, sometimes you'll get a song. And there are some things that it's like really hard to talk about. You interviewed me and Tara a while back about a really tragic thing that happened in our family around our getting married and being queer. And I don't know how to talk about that, but writing songs about it is coming really easily. So 
when she said you can do this, just curious, what other things, what other moments in this process have come up for you where you've thought, I don't know, I don't know, and then done it or maybe backed off? So some of these stories are very revealing. There are stories where I'm really interrogating what it means to become a man because I get to do that. It's a really kind of no-holds-barred look at that. And there are things, it's not a hagiography, right? Like I'm not just telling great stories about myself. I'm talking about mistakes I've made and I'm talking about things that I've learned. It's very scary for me to share about coming to a point where I put myself in anger management and how I learned to make the choice to not use anger as a weapon but to use it as a tool instead. And that's one of the steps in, in this culture where getting up and saying something serious about yourself like that, it comes with consequence. And I think part of becoming a man in a larger sense is accepting that and going, I'm going to do it. So that makes me think, that idea of interrogating what it means to become a man. I am absolutely certain that that is not a trans-specific experience of figuring that out. And I'm wondering, are you aware that you are also speaking to a larger audience, that you're speaking to cis men and women as well? Just, I don't know if you could talk about Absolutely. that a little bit. Well, like I said, I toured the show as a live theater piece for like 12 years, right? And my funniest experience was it was in Atlanta. I had the really great run in Atlanta. We, we like extended for several weeks. It was sold out like crazy and got a lot of press. And one night, there was this whole row of dude bros, <laughs> full-on Southern buddies. And I was like, what is going on? And they were having a good time. We were laughing. I took off all my clothes, which I did in the live show. And they were like, Brr. you know, <laughs> it was like I this. did not know there was also bonus skin. Full-on nudity, full-on. Because it was like, look, yeah. you know, and actually that piece really developed over the years of doing the show because after I had different medical interventions and in my transition, it stopped making sense. But also Laverne Cox let me off the hook on it when she asked Katie Couric to stop asking about what our bodies look like and what our genitals are. I was like, yeah, I guess I don't need to show people anymore. Yeah. I stand by the choice to have done it in the first place. It was a beautiful artistic moment. And as a person who identifies as a performance artist, it was necessary right, to do. It's historically part of that. But then I was just like, yeah, I don't need to do that anymore. I can have my privacy. And I can trust that my audience won't be sitting there wondering what's underneath my clothes the whole time because yeah. my stories are good enough. Right. Yeah. I'll distract them. But yeah, at the end of the live show, I would stand at the door and I would shake everybody's hand. The last line of the show is, you know, I don't know anything about being a man. The things that I've learned are you have to look people in the eye, shake hands firmly and know when to leave. And then I would leave and I would stand at the door and shake everybody's hand as they walked out. Right. And these guys came and they were like, we thought this was like the blue collar, you know, you're a redneck tour, <laughs> right? <laughs> because it's called Becoming a Man in 127 Easy Steps. So they thought they were going for like Jeff Foxworthy, like, you know and what I mean? That also like, suggests to me, maybe I'm reading too much into it, that they recognized Yeah, but it was just like, it was a good, a look, power of a good title. Yeah. They just didn't even, they didn't even read the description. They just thought, that's oh, a good title. Better. We know what this is. We're going. And then they got me, right? And all of that. And they were like, I was moved. 
I felt like you were talking to me, like I learned things about being a man from you. And, you know, I toured college circuits, too. And, you know, I would always get fraternity boys coming over and being like, I felt like you were telling my story, man. So, yeah, it's I say this is my story. I do not in any way intend to speak for any other trans man or any other trans person. This is my story. And the point of sharing it is to show that trans stories deserve to be listened to, to be heard, to be enjoyed, to be celebrated for the ways that they show cis people what their stories are. But, I mean, that's good storytelling is when you take something so unique to you and you're not telling anybody else's story but yours, and it is universal. Yeah. I mean, I am reading the little bits that you're sending to me, and I'm not looking at them saying, oh, this is a story of life on Mars where I've never been. I'm finding myself in those stories. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad to hear that. So that is storytelling in my mind. So what are some of your favorite steps? Well, everybody always asks for 69, of course. Um, It's like the one story I tell every time. And all these stories are true, by the way. It's a story about my job when I transitioned on the job as a waiter in a restaurant. And my boss was a real bro. And my last day at work, he was like, well, if you want to be a real man, you got to come with me to a strip club. And I was like, but I'm a feminist, you know, and so we go and I'm like this feminist trans man having an experience inside of a strip club. And it's very funny. It's it's like it's comedy gold. You know, so much of this experience is comedy gold. Right. Have you been surprised by the stories that resonate most in your audiences? Yeah, I have. They're oftentimes not the ones that I would expect. Another one that I sometimes choose to tell whether or not people actually choose it, because I do get that control as the artist, I tell a story about suicide, not because I want to talk about the trans experience as related to suicide, but because I know that every person in that room has been impacted by suicide, whether you have a trans person or a gay person any person in your life. And it was the story of my figuring out that actually the pain that I was feeling wasn't related to not wanting to be on this earth myself. It was about wanting things to change. Mm -hmm. And in that step, I sit there, there's an egg timer, and it's tick, 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 tick. And I say that line, I say, you know, I, I didn't want to die, I wanted things to change. And then I sit there for a full minute which on stage is a really long time, just looking at the audience and them looking at me, tick, 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 tick. And I say, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Waiting for change. That's good. But it's a way to kind of bring people in and to make people recognize how much we share and how precious we are to one another and how our pain can connect us rather than divide us. And hopefully that impacts them positively going forward. Just that insight on like, it's not death, it's change that's what you want. And if you can see it like that, what's the next step that you can take? And the next step and the next step after that. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this message. This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with Scott Turner Schofield about his upcoming multimedia film project, Becoming a Man in 127 Easy Steps. So much has changed politically since you first <laughs> wrote this. What was the year that you first took this out? 2007. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I won a Princess Grace Award for it and a National Performance Network Creation Fund Award to tour it around the U.S. In some ways, at that time, we were very, very early in sort of oh, our, yeah. this is our like, national or cultural conversation. This is so far ahead of its time. Yes. Yeah. 
And then we took some really dramatic steps in the following 10 years. Mm -hmm. But now here we are, two and a half years into the Trump administration. He's been rolling back the Obama guidance about students, the trans-military ban, HHS, we could go... In my workplace training, I have a slide, and I'm like, this is what's happened to us since the 2016 election. And it's a slide that I barely can even fit all of the text on of six different things that are intense Mm -hmm. and awful. And that's just what we wake up to every day. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, is it changing the story that you're telling? Are your steps changing? Have you added any steps or taken any out? Mm-hmm. I've taken some steps out where I'm like, oh, I was wrong about that. I'm not going to publicize that. <laughs> right? Can you think of one? Um, oh. I decided that I wasn't going to talk specifically about people that I've been in romantic relationships with about like specific people. I might talk about things that I learned as a result of a relationship, but it's not fair to anyone. They didn't give me permission to do that. So I'm not going to do it. Those are things that I've taken out. And yeah, there has been a lot to learn and to add. You know, even within my own life, my family initially was, and this is like my family that I grew up in. Uh, My parents are great, right? And they continue to be great, and I'm grateful for that. But this is like very close family. You know, when I first came out, there's a story about that where it's this funny little story about how a kid saves the day and turns this really heavy conversation about how I'm changing my name and pronouns into something adorable and wonderful. And then 15 years later, I'm so excited to involve my very close and big family in the happiest moment of my life, getting married. And my family turns around and says, well, actually, you're a girl and we don't believe in two girls getting married, so we won't be showing up for you. And so that was a new one. right? And that I mean, boy, I could write a whole show about that. But uh, right. So it's but in terms of like the political situation, I mean, honestly, I feel like my family only had the ability to say that to me, given how much things have changed. Unfortunately, it went in the wrong direction for me, but their understanding and and the visibility of the trans community to them has been what it is. But there are also some things that I don't want to say that would be very reactionary to this moment, because I want this whole piece to be something that's very much more transcendent Mm. about kind of the larger things at play, because no trans person is about our transition. We are about all of the stories that make up who we are before, during, and after. And that's what you get with these 127 steps. And I was struck by something you said earlier about, you talked about sort of an earlier iteration that you were naked, and then you came to a place of saying, I don't need to do that anymore. It really illustrates to me that this idea that trans is a before and after thing is kind of BS that... It's you reductive. know, trans truly, yeah, reductive. <laughs> it's trans truly is everything you think when you think of that, the concept of just trans as a suffix. Right. A journey. Yeah. I mean, and it's so corny to say I roll my eyes to the back of my head when I say that. But it's true. But it really is. You know, we're, I am a soul in a casing transiting this earth right now, learning things. And that is what I'm sharing to you from my particular perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about, you mentioned it at first, the multimedia aspect of this, that, you know, you can't tell 127 stories in one movie unless people are really committed to sitting there. (laughs) So what is that going to look like to sort of recreate the I want to hear story number 101? So we haven't, I mean, this is all a process, too. We haven't quite figured out the mode of doing it. What I do know is there's going to be a podcast that you will be able to access through your podcasting portal. Uh, There's going to be a book. 
that you can access through either an online portal, if you read online, or uh, in, in paper, right? Um, and there's going to be a film. And each one of those stories will be there. There will be some kind of map to help you get to all of those. Um, and that may involve just like clicking, like you can sort of do sort of like on the Google, I feel lucky idea, right? Like you could click, like, just take me to another step and it'll take you somewhere randomly. Or you can choose to go in a direction based on, um, you know, everything will be kind of grouped and kind of giving you like a treasure map of themes, right? So themes like family, transition, childhood, adulthood, being a man, manhood, right? Fan I already said family, right? Um, but right, drugs, sex, right? Like these are prominent themes. In my in my story as well. Um, For enough. many of us, they are. <laughs> right? So so right. Um, death is a big mm. one, right? Like, not only have I, you know, had a real tango with suicide over a lot of years, but I've also like had some very bonkers near death experiences, right? That and that have given me a real perspective on like just being alive, right? The fact that I get to be alive. I've walked away from more than one thing where someone has said to me, "You shouldn't be alive now." Right. So great. Here I am to tell the tale. Guess I was meant to. Right. So so, you know, the steps will sort of take you through if you want to read something around a whole theme, you can read all of the th or read or listen to or watch all of those things. But yeah, the precise mechanism is something that we're trying to figure out. And that's going to have to do with, you know, right now, this is an independent project. That's why we're doing Patreon for it. That's, you know, that's why we're, you know, trying to get people to support it in the community to take it to a platform where, you know, somewhere will 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 think like oh yeah we can do all of those things let's let's help you do all of those things how do you have a date a target date at this point um when the when the full thing will be revealed and accessible 2020 for sure okay um i'm you know we're, we're running really hard for that so yeah. just not sure exactly when in 2020 so the we I was very fascinated to hear that about 90 percent of your crew are women and that includes trans women, 50% um, approximately people of color, you said, and a mess of queers, um, <laughs> and a few straight white men. Uh, and, you know, I, you know, you, you also commented it is kind of ironic that in a film about becoming a man, it's mostly women involved in this, but you've been involved <laughs> surprise, surprise. in TV and movies and everything for so long. This is not typical. So what's it like? What are you noticing in having this very representative, diverse crew uh, working with you? What's the first thing that comes to mind about how that changes things, if it does at all? Absolutely. And well, you know, the, pro the product that you see when you when you watch a film is the product of a massive collaboration. It's a miracle, honestly, like every every movie you ever see is a miracle. Right. Um, but it's a massive collaboration of people all setting their vision toward the same like sight right and going going for it together um so for me if i had gone on there and been faced you know i'm especially in the film like i'm one person and it, it is a one-man show right um so if i had gone there and been looking at a bunch of like cis white people right that would have alienated me as a trans person right like I, and it would have made me think like i know that i'm not telling the depths of this story that I can tell because every because of the homogenous nature of the people who are making this, right? Sure, talent knows no gender, knows no color, right? That's all true. But like also, hello, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're recognizing this. And I've been really impacted by the work of the Time's Up movement and of the offshoot of 5050 by 2020, which is uh, a, a movement within 
the industry to make 50-50, like 50% women directors, which is trans inclusive, um, uh, by the year 2020, right? Um, and crew people and all of that. So I was like, you know what? I believe in that. That's what I'm going to do. And because I'm the producer of this, I can make that happen. And my um, my co-producer, Andrea James, who's a trans woman who's been around in Hollywood for a long time doing a lot of great work, um, was completely in agreement with that to say, like, we need to choose as carefully who's who's doing this. We wanted to make it so that people who don't often, like who will get passed over for opportunities, right? Like get those opportunities, not despite who they are, but because of who they are, right? And also if there are opportunities for people to learn new things, to shadow, right? We made those things open to them as well. And everybody who came in kind of had that ethic together, which made for a feeling on set and and makes for, because we're still shooting, like makes for a feeling of, yeah, we're all doing this. We all have the same vision about this. And it's much bigger than me. You were also just profiled in Forbes magazine for your workplace transgender awareness work. For my day job. Every, for your day job. I'm a trans actor. I need a day job, yeah. obviously. Yeah, you do. Right? I'm not mm-hmm. independently wealthy. So back in the beginning of my career, over 15 years ago, I was touring around doing these shows about being trans when nobody knew really what that meant. And so I was like, well, okay, let me teach you what it means. And so if I would go to a college, I would do a class talk. If I would go into a town, I would do like a community workshop about it. And I got really good at it. And I ended up doing a TED Talk about it. And that was very popular. And I moved into the corporate world from the universities because corporations are intelligent and recognize that if you can bring your whole self to work and not be held back by what you're worried about people knowing or finding out about you, you actually work more productively. Surprise. And that a diverse work environment brings diverse voices, brings more creativity. So that's why I'm being brought in. And also because a large number of people are transitioning now. And we know that from the Williams Institute, 27% of youth are identifying as gender nonconforming in some way. So this is going to hit the business pretty soon. So they're bringing me in to kind of explain that to them and help them get it together for how to be sensitive because I genuinely believe that most everybody wants to be cool. They want to be kind to people and they want to know how to do that. And there are a few like specific things that you're not taught in school. I wait for a world where At the same time that four-year-olds are taught boys have a penis, girls have a vagina, they're also taught sometimes, and sometimes it's different. And when 14-year-olds are taught don't put a penis inside a vagina without a condom on, they're also taught, or anywhere else, (laughs) (laughs) like for that matter, right, without consent and Mm -hmm. safety, right? Mm. But we're not in that world yet. And so most people just aren't set up to know how to do it. And it's a very simple process that I take people through to just help them figure that out so that when a trans person comes to work for them or a non-binary person or just a gender diverse person in general comes to work, they don't have to teach everybody else because that should, they're not being paid to do that job and they shouldn't have to. So when you are contacted by a corporation, my first thought is, oh, they're probably calling you because, you know, some compliance officer said you got to do this and they're not bought in. But it sounds like they kind of are. More and more and more. And this is one of the changes that has happened since the 2016 election. Because this government has spent so much money focusing on harming trans people. It's like, those are your taxpayer dollars at work. Isn't that useful? The military ban and making sure the Department of Education doesn't let kids pee where and when they need to. So these things are happening and it's bringing that to the public's mind. And the vast majority of the public recognizes how unfair 
that is. And a lot of people now are calling me, yes, it used to be compliance, right? But now it's people saying like, no, we need to be aware of this and we want to be allies. And I think that's the best thing that has come out of this whole nightmare is more people know about us, care about us, and are mad on our behalf than ever before in my entire career. That's pretty great. Thank you, Scott Turner Schofield. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. There's so much more to talk to you about, but I look forward to seeing more steps. I'm excited to share them with you, and thank you so much. Okay, well, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, plus our tireless director of podcast distribution, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're interested in volunteering with IMRU to help make the magic happen, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, because we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by the station, you can always hear our weekly show posted to the kpfk.org website. You can also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. Mama.